Chapter 65 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Haakon Haakonsson and Skule Jarl. King Haakon Haakonsson came from the unknown, like his great predecessors, Olaf Tryggvason, Olaf the Saint, and Sverre Sigurdsson. He was an illegitimate child, born in obscurity by Inga of Varteig after King Haakon Sverresson's death. Had he fallen to the hands of King Sverre's old enemies, his history would probably have been short, but the faithful Berkebeiner guarded the child against the plotting Bogler chieftains. The Haakon Haakonsson saga gives the following account of Haakon's early years. Throned priest knew that Haakon Sverresson was the child's father. He baptized it and kept this so secret that he did not dare to let anyone bring it to the baptism, save his two sons and his wife. He reared the child in secrecy. There was a man called Erland of Husabo, a relative of King Sverre, of Guttorm Gralbarda's family. Thrawn priests sought Erland and spoke to him about the child, and they agreed that it had to be kept hidden as well as possible. The first year the child stayed with Thrawn priest, but the next winter, before Christmas, Thrawn and Erland made ready to go northward from Borgersisel, and they took the prince and his mother with them. They went with the greatest possible secrecy to Oplenina. On Christmas Eve they came to the city of Hamar in Hedemarken, where there were two Berkebein Sisselmaind, Frederick Slaffa and Gjavald Gauta. They had a large number of men, and were much afraid because the Bogler were round about in Oplenina. Bishop Ivor was in Hamar at the time, and he was then, as always, a bitter enemy of Sverre's family and of all the Berkebeiner. However secretly they went with the child, the bishop soon learned that a king's son had come to the city. The bishop then invited the prince and his mother to stay with him during Christmas, saying, as in sooth was the case, that the prince was his relative. But the Berkebeiner did not trust him, and answered, saying that the king's son should come to him after Christmas, that both he and his mother were now too tired from the journey to stay where so many people were assembled. But as soon as Christmas Day was over, the Sisselmaind took three horses and brought the prince and his mother away from the city. They did not stop until they came to Lillehammer, where they remained on a little farm in the greatest secrecy till after Christmas. During Christmas, the Berkebeiner sent word to Toten and all neighboring districts, and summoned all the Berkebeiner to meet them. After Christmas, they left Hamar and came to Lillehammer, and took the prince and his mother with them, and went to Österdalen, whence they would go to Trondheim. On this journey they suffered much from cold, snow, and bad weather. At times they had to spend the night in forests and in uninhabited wilds. One evening the weather became so bad that they did not know where they were. They then sent Thorsten Skevla and Skervald Skrucke, two of the best ski-runners, in advance with the prince. They got two men who were well acquainted with the locality to act as guides. They traveled as fast as they could, but did not find the way to the settlements. They came then to some out-farm sheds, made fire, and prepared a bed there for the child. Later the guides returned to find the others, and they came back to the sheds about midnight. It was uncomfortable to stay there, for it was dripping everywhere when the snow was melted by the fire, and most of them thought they might as well stay outside as inside. They had no other food for the child than snow, which they melted and poured into its mouth. The place where they stayed was called Navardal. Afterwards, walking became so difficult that they could not break a path through the snow otherwise than by pounding it down with their spear handles. 
In Østerdal the people helped them in every way. Wherever they came, they lent them horses and guided them on the road. Thoughtful men have said that the troubles and difficulties which the Berkerbeiner encountered on this journey, and the fear they also had for their enemies until they came to Trondhjem with the prince, could best be compared with the dangers to which Olaf Tryggvason and his mother Ostrid were exposed when they fled from Norway to Svitiod from Gunhild and her sons. The Berkerbeiner brought Haakon to Trondhjem to King Ingebardsson, who reared him and acknowledged him to be the son of Haakon Sverreson and rightful heir to the throne. Among Sverre's old veterans, the boy was a great favorite. He was very lively, though small and young in years. He was very mature in his speech, so that the Jarl and all who knew him had great fun over his comical sayings. Often, two of the Berkebeiner took him, one by the head and the other by the feet, and stretched him in fun, saying that this would make him grow, for it seemed to them that he was growing too slowly. When King Inge died, the ambitious Skola Bardson, his brother, openly aspired to the throne, although he supported for a time King Inge's eleven-year-old son, Guttorm. But the Berkebeiner, led by Vegard af Veradal, a prominent man within the herd, rallied around Sverre's young grandson, Haakon Haakonsson, who proved to be a more popular candidate. Skula pretended to doubt Haakon's royal descent. He sought the support of the clergy, reaffirmed the constitution of 1164, which excluded illegitimate sons from the throne, and sought to prevent the choice of a king as long as possible. Hawkins' supporters grew impatient. The herd assembled under Vegard's leadership, and demanded that Hawkins should be proclaimed king without further delay. A letter was also brought from the Gulathingslag by the Berkerbein chieftain, Dogfin Bonda, stating that if the Trunders hesitated to proclaim Hawkins king, who was the rightful heir to the throne, they would immediately hail him as king at the Gulathing. The Urathing was then assembled, and Haakon was proclaimed king of Norway, 1217, at the age of 13. Accompanied by Skule Jarl, Haakon then went to Bergen, where he was also hailed as king. It was decided that Skule should receive one-third of all the royal revenues, but he was jealous and dissatisfied. He plotted with the Bagler, persuaded King Philippus in Viken to demand one-half of the revenues of the kingdom, and without Haakon's knowledge and consent he used the royal seal, which was still in his possession. Archbishop Guttorm and the bishops would not acknowledge Haakon before he had given better proof of his royal birth, and the matter was referred to a council of magnates which assembled at Bergen in 1218, where the archbishop, bishops, and lendermand were present. Inge of Vartig had to submit to trial by ordeal to prove that Haakon was the son of Haakon's Ferrison. She passed the ordeal successfully, and Haakon's elevation to the throne was sanctioned by the council. The archbishop and the clergy acknowledged him the lawful king of Norway, and Skule Jarl could no longer resist with any show of right. The king granted favors without partiality to the leaders of all groups, and the Bagler now disappeared as a distinct party. In 1218, a new rebel band, the Slitungs, had assembled in the border district of Marker, and had chosen as their leader a pretender by the name of Bene, or Benedict. They caused great disturbance in many districts, but were finally dispersed by the united forces of the Bogler and Berkebeiner. The Ribungs, who appeared later, were more powerful, and their leader Sigurd Ribung, who claimed to be a grandson of Magnus Erlingsson, carried on a guerrilla warfare in the southeastern districts for many years. They did not disappear until 1227, after Sigurd Ribung's death. In order to establish a more permanent friendship between the king and Skule Jarl, 
Haakon was betrothed to Skule's daughter Margaret in 1219, but she was at that time only nine or ten years of age, and their marriage was not solemnized until 1225. The new distinction of being the king's father-in-law flattered the ambitious Jarl, and for a time he seems to have been well disposed towards King Haakon. It may have been evident even to Skule Jarl that it would be impossible at that moment to organize a successful revolt against the popular grandson of King Sverre. The whole nation was weary of the endless feuds between rival pretenders, and longed to bind up their many wounds. With intuitive foresight, born of secret but earnest longing, they were soon able to prognosticate that Hawken Hawkinson would inaugurate a new era of peace, towards which many looked as to a promised land after many generations of bloody civil strife. The martial notes died away in song and saga, and the writers tell us with rejoicing how Hawkins' peaceful and benign reign made the land blossom, and nature grow suddenly fruitful as if awakened by a new impulse. When Hawkins was made king, it was such a good year in the land that it was general that fruit trees blossomed two times, and that the birds laid eggs twice, says the saga. The skald Sturla Thordson says in a song about King Hawkins, it is certain that twice blossomed the fruit trees in one summer, and that from the beginning of the year wild birds laid eggs twice without suffering from cold, when the ruler, desirous of glory, had taken the name of king, and his good fortune, destined to reach the highest fame, began to grow. Saw then all that the elements on the wide ocean-encircled earth would welcome the noble king. All might now have been well, but ambition gave Skule Jarl no rest. It stole the contentment from his heart, and filled his mind with treasonable thoughts. In 1223 he went to Denmark to visit King Valdemar the Victorious, who was at that time the most powerful monarch in the north. It seems to have been his plan to make himself king of southern Norway by Valdemar's aid, and to acknowledge him as his overlord. But Valdemar had been taken prisoner by one of his own vassals, Henry of Schwerin, and Skula had to resort to his old method of intriguing against Haakon. In 1223, the king would be of age, 18 years old. Skula could no longer act as his guardian, and the last remnant of royal power would slip from his hands. He had not abandoned his claim to the throne, and his attitude grew more hostile as the time approached when Hawken would hold the reins of power. But even under these circumstances, Hawken showed the wise moderation which distinguished him throughout his whole reign. No one could justly question his title to the throne, but he nevertheless summoned a council to meet at Bergen on Olafmas, July 29, 1223, where all pretenders should meet and have their claims carefully examined. A greater meeting of notables had never been assembled in Norway. Beside the king sat the Lendermand, Sisselmand, and Logmand from the whole kingdom, the archbishop, the bishops, and many other ecclesiastics. The Orkneys were represented by Jarl Jón and Bishop Bjarna, the Faroe Islands by Bishop Serkva, and the Shetland Islands by Archdeacon Nicholas, and the royal Sisselman Gregorius Kick, who was married to King Sverre's daughter Cecilia. The pretenders present were Skule Jarl, Guttorm, son of Inge Bordson, Sigurd Ribung, and Junker Knut, son of Haakon Galen, and a nephew of King Sverre. After all claims had been carefully examined, the Logmain declared that Haakon Haakonsson was the rightful heir to the throne, and the archbishop solemnly proclaimed him the lawful king of Norway. Skula was to rule over one-third of the kingdom, but had to swear fealty to the king. 
He received Trondelagen, Holagerland, Nordmer, Romsdal, and Sundmer. In these northern districts, where the people were very loyal to King Sverre's family, he would find small opportunity to secure aid from Denmark if she should venture to attempt an uprising against the king. In the opinion of posterity, as well as in the eyes of his own times, Haakon Haakonsson was a truly great king, who ruled with wisdom and carried himself with dignity. In his day, Norway reached the zenith of her power. The great activity in literature and architecture, the splendor of his court, and the high honor which he enjoyed among the crowned heads of Europe, made his reign the Augustan age in Norwegian history. King Haakon was rather short of stature, says the saga, but he was well-built and broad-shouldered. In appearance, he resembled King Sverre. He had a broad face and fair complexion, fine hair and large, beautiful eyes. He was cheerful, quick, and lively, always kind to those who were poor and in distress. Wise men who were sent to him from other rulers said that they had seen no prince who seemed to be more truly both companion, king, and lord. We notice in King Haakon a quiet dignity and calm judgment coupled with magnanimity and rare mental equipoise. He adhered firmly to the policy inaugurated by Sverre, but his statesmanship was broad-minded and clear-sighted. Though firm in principles, he was generous and conciliatory in minor matters. He reconciled and united all factions, built, legislated, and improved, and rounded into completion the work of his great predecessors Harald Harfagre, Olaf Tryggvason, St. Olaf, and King Sverre. Even his family life was an ideal one. In 1225, he married Skule Jarl's daughter, Margaret, who was then about 17. She was a most affectionate wife, and clung to her husband with the greatest tenderness even when her father turned traitor and became Hawkins' implacable enemy. The feeling that he held the throne by unclouded title, and ruled a prosperous and united people by their full consent and undivided support, gave Hawken a confidence, and threw about his life and reign a halo of harmony and dignified repose, to which Skula's ill-starred career, torn by unsatiated ambition and treasonable plots, forms a most tragic contrast. Unable to remain satisfied within his proper sphere, though the magnanimous king granted him the greatest honors, knowing that he could not openly gain the throne to which he had no title, Skula's heart was torn by doubt. He hatched plots, used underhand means, tried finally open revolt, and paid for it all by yielding his life to his pursuers in a last obscure retreat. In the fight between the Ghibellines and the Welfs, the kings of Denmark supported the latter, as they feared the German emperor who attempted to make their kingdom a vassal state under the imperial crown. But the Danes in turn sought to establish an overlordship over Norway, or its southern provinces, and as Skule Jarl solicited King Valdemar's aid in his ill-concealed efforts to obtain the crown, King Haakon endeavored to counteract this move by entering into closer relations with the Ghibelline emperor Frederick II of Germany, the most powerful monarch in Europe at that time. Frederick sent ambassadors to Norway. Haakon called the emperor his friend, and it is quite apparent that he counted on his support if Valdemar and Skule Jarl should venture to attack him. He also entered into friendly relations with Henry III of England, and an agreement was made by which restrictions on trade between the two kingdoms were removed. After Hawken had taken the reins of government into his own hands, he had to devote much time and energy for several years to put down the Rubung uprising. When Sigurd Rubung died in 1226, 
Junker Knut became the leader of these rebels. They had always received aid from the border provinces in Sweden, and Knut's mother, Christina, who was married to Logmund Eskel in Vestergötland, aided her son liberally. But Haakon pushed the campaigns against him with such vigor that Knut submitted and disbanded the Ribungs in 1227. Haakon now returned from Oslo to Bergen. Near Lindesnes he met Skule Jarl, who was on his way to Denmark with many large ships to aid Valdemar the Victorious. The Danish king had regained his liberty, and was endeavoring to punish his rebellious vassals and regain the territory which he had lost. Haakon did not upbraid Skule, though he met him on so suspicious an errand, but he could inform him that Valdemar had just suffered a crushing defeat at Bornhoved. Skule, who understood that he could accomplish nothing in Denmark under these circumstances, returned with Haakon to Bergen. For some time the relations between the two were seemingly friendly, but Skule built a fleet of his own and conducted himself in a way which awakened grave suspicion as to his loyalty. In 1233 he was summoned before a council at Bergen to answer to charges preferred against him, but he boldly denied every accusation, and no further action was taken in the matter. King Hawkins still treated Skula with considerate regard, but the Jarl's conduct became more and more openly disloyal, especially after an illegitimate son, Peter, was born to him. In 1235 he took a step which might have plunged the country into civil war. For a second time he was summoned before a council of magnates at Bergen to explain his conduct. He left Trondheim with twenty warships, but spent the whole summer in Steinavog, in Sundmer, and did not go to Bergen, though repeatedly requested to appear. The king finally sailed northward with a fleet of forty ships to meet him. Skule hesitated for a while. Some advised him to come to an understanding with the king. Others appealed to his pride and whetted his jealousy. He followed the advice to which his nature inclined him, left his ships on Hawkins' approach, and crossed the mountains into Oplandena and the southern provinces. In order to avoid an open conflict, the king made him the offer that he could collect the royal revenues of the southern one-third of the kingdom if he would not begin hostilities until a peaceful settlement could be negotiated. This offer was accepted by Skula, who used the respite thus granted to organize a new band of rebels called Fardbelgs. After repeated efforts, a reconciliation was again brought about between Hawken and Skula Jarl. A new division of territory was made by which Skula should have one-third of all the Sisler, or administrative districts, in the kingdom, and at the Urething in 1237 he was given the title of duke, hertug equals dux. He received no additional power, but the new title must have been granted him as the greatest honor which could be bestowed upon a subject, as it had never before been used in Norway. But even this new honor could not long satisfy the ambitious Jarl. The following year he took the decisive step. After collecting a large military force in Trundelagen and levying heavy taxes for its support, he assembled the Urething, where he was proclaimed king of Norway. He took the oath on the shrine of St. Olaf, which his son Peter and a few others had forcibly removed from the Christ Church. In the opinion of many, this desecration of the sanctuary was a rather inauspicious omen for the rebellion thus set on foot. Skula sought to prevent word from being sent to the king of the step which he had taken, but the news was brought King Haakon in Bergen on the night of the 15th of November by Grim Kaiken, one of his herdmaind, who had succeeded in eluding the Varbelgs. The saga says, There were not many with the king when he received this news. 
He sat a while silent, and then said, God be praised that I now know the situation from this day on, for that which has now come to light has long been planned. He went to the queen's lodging and asked to be admitted. Light was burning in her apartments, and some of her servants and maids were sleeping there. The king approached her bed where she was standing in a silk sleeping gown. She threw a red cloak about her and greeted the king, and he returned her greeting cordially. She took a silk pillow and bade him be seated, but he declined. The queen then asked him if he had received any news. Nothing very important, he said, but now there are two kings in Norway. She said, Only one can be the rightful king, and that is you. God and St. Olaf grant that it may always be thus. The king then told her that her father had been proclaimed king at the Urething. Things must still be better than that, she said, believe it or not, for God's sake, until you have received full assurance. Then she burst into tears, and she could say no more. The king bade her be of good cheer, and said that she should not suffer for her father's conduct. Shortly afterwards he left, and as soon as day came he caused mass to be said, and then summoned his counselors. Grimm was present and told them the news which he brought. It was then decided to send war bulletins both north and south from Bergen, and call thither half the Almening. Skule Jarl sent his Varbogs into many districts to burn and pillage. He left Trondhjem and went to the southern provinces, where he gained some advantages over the king Sisselmand, but Hawkins soon arrived and defeated him in the Battle of Oslo. With a few followers, Skule fled northward to Trondhjem, but the city was soon taken by the royal forces, and his son Peter was killed. For some days Skula roamed about in the forests, not knowing what course to pursue. He finally sought refuge in the monastery of Elgesither, but the angry Berkebeiner set fire to it, forced him to come out, and slew him, May 24, 1240. This was the closing episode of the civil wars. Skula had attempted rebellion in an age which would not be disturbed. The uprising did not prove dangerous, and Hawken treated with the greatest leniency all those who had taken part in the revolt. End of chapter 65